Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are still in Matthew 10 this week, and we're going to kind of continue on from where we were last week. Um, and so Alan's going to set this up, and we're going to spend a lot of time setting up the until we get to these actual verses here. So, um, yeah, just uh, put, on your, put on your thinking caps, and let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Yeah, the, as you said, this, this week's lesson continues our discussion of Matthew's missionary discourse in Matthew chapter 10. And as we mentioned last week, Matthew combines materials from various segments of the synoptic gospel tradition to compose his missionary discourse, much as he did with the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see this reflected again in our lesson for this week. The combination has the effect, as we discussed last week, of shifting the focus from Jesus' instructions to the Twelve to an emphasis on the commission to Matthew's community to carry out the work of Jesus. As I mentioned last week also, there's some confusion about the division of the parts of the chapter. Um, Our lesson for today, I think, takes Matthew's missionary discourse in a new direction. In Matthew 10, 5 through 15, the content is more consistent with Jesus' original instructions to the Twelve, it seems to be more oriented around that. You know, mm-hmm. this is what you take and this is what you do. In Ma- Matthew ten sixteen, however, the topic shifts to the fate of those who faithfully carry out Jesus' commission. And specifically, Matthew borrows material. I think I mentioned this last mm-hmm. week, but this is where Matthew borrows material from the apocalyptic discourse in Matthew 13, especially in Mark mm-hmm. 13, especially. Well, um, I know and, when I read it, I picked up on that apocalyptic yeah. language. It just yeah. kind of boom. Yeah. But if you're not if you're not familiar with it, or if you're not aware of it, it it kind of it kind of is confusing. But but once you if you if you know what you're looking for, you see it pretty loud. Well, I think it's equally confusing because you know to some extent Matthew repeats some similar material and augments it in his own apocalyptic discourse yes. in Matthew 24. So mm-hmm. it's kind of it's kind of interesting that cuz and you can see it clearly in some places in in one verse for, for example it's word for word the same as Matthew 13. Um, well, as Mark I keep saying Matthew Mark 13. When I read at least 24 through 29 um, the part that was assigned for the day I found it very choppy, though. Mm-hmm. Just like well, little, little it's, it's it's pieced together. Pieced together. It didn't yeah. it didn't feel to have a continuity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I get to my part, I'm just pulling out one little verse right, actually. Right. But um, yeah, it, it does it, it it. I think I think there is, is a continuity in Matthew's right. mind, but I think I think we have to work to get there. Yeah, I, I was going to say <laughs> that's why this is important to kind of set us up because yeah. on its own, it, it's very weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. If you just start with Matthew. 10, 24 through 39, it does not make much sense. It really doesn't. You really have to start with verse 16. Right. Yeah. Right. So again, I would suggest that the natural, natural starting point for the gospel lesson this week is Matthew 10, 16. I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. This introduces the idea that just as those who follow Jesus' instructions are seen as carrying out his ministry by doing the same things he did and by preaching the same gospel he did, so they also suffer the same fate he did rejection. And again, we see how Matthew is arranging gospel traditions to compose his missionary discourse, and specifically, Matthew is shifting the focus to the situation of the church after Mm -hmm. Easter, which was indeed one of rejection and persecution. Right, which... I assume this is what his his listeners or readers would be experiencing. Yes, yes. Now, the fact that the disciples are being sent out like sheep into the midst of the wolves points to the following verse. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. And that's in verse verse 17. It's important to notice, however, that while the faithful among Matthew's community seem to retain some kind of connection with the synagogues, note it's called their synagogues, yeah, not, not your synagogues. Your. Right, mm-hmm. right. That's interesting. So there's, there, that's, where, that's where we get this idea that Matthew's community is either in the process of separating from the synagogue or has just recently separated from mm-hmm. the synagogue. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, so not only will the faithful who carry out Jesus' instructions face rejection and persecution at the hands of Jewish religious leaders, they will also be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles in verse 18. And this also clearly refers to the post-Easter time frame in Matthew's setting because, as we saw last week, there's really no hint of a Gentile mission prior to the cross and resurrection. 
And so in Matthew's gospel, they're being dragged before governors and kings brings out the theme of the clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms mm-hmm, of the world. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, that's hinted at when the Magi come to the King Herod and ask, where's the one born right. king of the Jews? Right. And it's also hinted when the governor Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So, right. you know, that, 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 that theme is a part of Matthew's okay. gospel. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then Matthew follows this warning with an assurance. Not only will they be given what to say when they face their opponents, but I would say it's also an implicit assurance that they will not face their opponents alone. And again, this comes from Mark's apocalyptic discourse. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Mm-hmm. And... and you know that that verse in in Matthew is referencing uh, Mark thirteen eleven, but it's also referring to Luke twelve eleven through twelve, where this tradition occurs in a totally different context mm. from Matthew and Mark. So we get to see some of the seams in the gospel tradition mm-hmm, somewhat mm-hmm. in here. Mm-hmm. So again, the witness or the martyrion that they will bear to the Gentiles is the proclamation of the gospel that they will be given. And addition, and and only uh, here in the New Testament is the Spirit called the Spirit of the Father. This is a unique phrase. Hmm. It's only found here in Matthew's gospel. Hmm. And furthermore, this is the only reference to the Spirit in connection to the twelve or Matthew's community or disciples in general in Matthew at all. In Matthew, the Spirit is found in connection with Jesus' ministry, and ah. um, it is Jesus' continuing presence that enables Matthew's community to carry out their commission as witnesses. There's no conferring of the Spirit, or no promise of the conferring of the Spirit in Matthew's in Matthew. gospel. In Matthew's gospel, it concludes with, I am with you always, right? right? right. And so, so um, mm-hmm. it's Jesus who is the one who empowers them to carry mm-hmm. out their commission as witnesses, mm-hmm. which is an interesting That's a little, uh, feature of Matthew's gospel. And I think most people miss that, I think, again. Well, you assume, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And we do, and, while, and, and the way our... our our church year works with, you know, we always celebrate the birth of the church. We always celebrate Pentecost right. of the spirit coming down. So we have this assumption that that's kind of the historical process. And this is a very different kind well, of Well, and in the original, in the original setting of the gospels, the Lucan communities would have had Luke and Acts very likely, but originally Matthew's community probably would have only had Mark and Matthew. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be, you know, because right. Ma- Matthew reflects reflects Luke reflects Q material. It doesn't reflect Luke. Right. It reflects Q material that's shared with Luke, but it really reflects Mark's Mark. material. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Matthew's community has access to Mark's gospel, mm-hmm. but they would they would not have had access to a Pentecost story of Pentecost right. in the Book of Acts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And until you know, probably sometime in the second century. Yeah, it's interesting when when the gospels started to circulate together. It's interesting to think about that historically, right? It's interesting mm-hmm. to think about um, how how that church did form, and if indeed the the description that Luke gives us in Acts mm-hmm. really is authentic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, it, it is, I'm sure. I would say that we it have is. Paul. And I would say it's as, as authentic as, as any first century narrative like that right. would be. But, you know, you wonder, of course, the other traditions of the other disciples that mm-hmm. stories that we don't have. Yeah. You know, I always think about that. And You read some of them, though, and they're so obviously legendary. Oh, that, of course. That, <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not advocating for putting yeah. those in, but, yeah. but you can see how... This is kind of a, to, to put it it's together part of a whole, yeah. and to make it whole, mm-hmm. but, and also to have the significance of this kind of event of the spirit coming down as opposed to, it, it kind well, of. And the interesting thing is that, you know, by the end of the second century, the gospels are circulating in manuscripts by themselves. Right. So that means Luke and Acts are no longer together. Yes. Acts is circulating in manuscripts that, that, that start, that, you know, Acts comes first and then it's the general letters. Mm-hmm. And right. Revelation, right? And so you've got you. So you've got three collections. You've got the Gospels. You've got the letters of Paul, and you've got Acts and the general letters in Revelation mm-hmm. that are beginning to circulate by the end of the second right. century, which is kind of interesting because Acts gets separated from Luke in in the, in the in the process of forming these collections. It does, and and in our tradition, then how many people know Acts? You know, right. my, my college students are learning of. I don't know these figures. Mm-hmm. I 
I have not studied them in any depth. There's a few stories here and there we can pull out, but as yeah. a whole, they're no, not that's right. familiar with Acts. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, um, so Matthew then continues with material from the apocalyptic discourse tradition. He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10, 21 and 22. And this section is not only a summary of Micah 7, 6, but it agrees verbatim with the Greek text of Mark oh. 13, 12. Cool. It is word for word the same as the Greek text of Mark hmm. 13, 12. So again, there's, there's no question that Matthew is relying on Mark right. here. Now, one question this does raise is how much we should read this in light of an eschatological point of view. Mm -hmm. For example, Gene Boring reads all of this section as part of the final fulfillment of the kingdom of God in terms of the woes or the sufferings that the disciples Mm -hmm. have to endure, the witness they offer with their words in their lives, and the final coming of the Son of Man. And of course, one of the things we need to clear clear up is that in this context, eschatological does not necessarily mean the end time as in some point in the distant future, but it refers to fulfillment right eschatological is is something that relates to the fulfillment of god's purposes in right. the world right. now this is particularly relevant for the next verse which is unique to matthew in the gospel tradition when they persecute you in this town flee to the next for truly i tell you you will not have finished going through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes and that's matthew 10 23 and it's only found in matthew it's not found anywhere else in the gospel mm, tradition mm-hmm. And some may know that this verse was the crux for Albert Schweitzer's so-called thoroughgoing eschatology as a framework for interpreting Jesus. But in his thoroughly eschatological reading of Jesus, he construed this passage as evidence that Jesus believed that sending the twelve out to extend his mission would lead to the coming of the Son of Man, who was probably, in Schweitzer's view, somebody other than him, Interesting. and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And when that didn't happen, Jesus decided to go to the cross in a mistaken attempt to force the eschatological film fulfillment. <laughs> well, that point of view has lots of problems with it, not least of which it makes Jesus out to be Absol- a kind of false prophet. Absolutely. because the he says, son of man is someone else. This, well, but he also says the son of man is going to come before you go, make it through the towns of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it sounds like it's going to be something immediate. There have been a lot of efforts to get around this in various ways, and I won't go into all the detail there, but I've discussed before that the most prevalent eschatological interpretation of Jesus is that he he inaugurated the kingdom of God in his ministry, and that it remained to be fulfilled at his coming as the exalted Son of Man in the end. And I personally think that with inaugurated eschatology, there is a note of fulfillment to everything in Jesus' ministry. And beyond that, everything that the church has done and continues to do is to be viewed from this quote-unquote eschatological perspective. We're still living into the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Yes, yes. So, so that it's eschatological in the sense that, 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 that you know, to some extent, the end time started with Jesus right. <laughs> and, and with the pouring out of the Spirit. And so from that perspective, I, I would say this. From that perspective, I think there's always a certain amount of prophetic foreshortening in that Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man as something that will be unexpected and sudden. And the New Testament interprets it very consistently as soon. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that soon mean? You know, in, right. in Revelation, um, you know, the introduction to Revelation says, you know, that this was the revelation that Jesus gave to John to let them know what was, must happen soon. Right, well, right. I mean, if your definition of soon is 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 chronological, mm-hmm. that's uh, <laughs> right. That was that was off, right? Right. But I think we should, we should, and we see this in Paul's letters as well. And I think we see it here in in Matthew's interpretation of the gospel tradition. The soon of of um, the fulfillment is is, to, is I think meant to be understood in a theological sense and a temporal mm-hmm. sense, and, and it's from this perspective that that we're always living in an eschatological era because the time of fulfillment yes. began with Jesus and continues to this day. Yeah, yeah, I agree with so that. So it's eschatological in that yeah. sense. It's soon in that sense. I we're agree. always living in the soon of right. the coming of the Son well, of Man. You know, and well, this is I'm maybe still in a temporal mind space i always do think about you know our our concepts of time as human beings are mm-hmm. so incredibly narrow mm-hmm. compared to god's time and as you you know are we can look at galaxies and we can look at uh, you know even the um even the time span span of on earth here and we tend to think of our own little mm-hmm. world and i think 
I guess I tend to see it that way. Sure. That's how I tend sure. To read well, I mean, if you think about 20 billion light years of, of time that is that is present to God right. all at once. <laughs> well, you know, I was reading in Calvin today how he's talking about, well, this is just like some stars are brighter than others. And I'm like, because he's assuming they're all on one plane, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. he doesn't have the science right. to understand. Some of those some are, are far, far, far yeah. away, doesn't understand the distance there. And um, it, it reminded me of that. It's like uh, our, our own ability to, have concepts about time and space are so limited as to our, our humanness. Now I do realize that we are just now getting to the actual lectionary passage for today, Matthew 10, (laughs) 24 to 39. But I would say, however, it makes no sense to start with Matthew 10, 24. And I would insist that all we've discussed up to this point is necessary context to make sense of what follows. Mm -hmm. And so in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, Matthew reframes a saying from Q. It's found in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, by the way, in Mm -hmm. Luke chapter 6, to summarize the theme of what has gone before. A disciple is not above the teacher nor a slave above the master. And so, again, the idea is um, just as um, people rejected and betrayed Jesus, so they will also reject Mm -hmm. and betray them. But more than that, as we've already seen, those who are faithful to carry out the witness to the kingdom as the missionary discourse instructs can be expected to be rejected and maligned just as Jesus was. And so, you know, I think this is, this is the whole point. And, and you have to have that preceding context yes. to be able to see that in, these, in this collection of sayings. that you Because ha- really that's what you have is a collection of sayings from different parts of the gospel right. tradition right. in Matthew 10, 24 through yeah. 39. Yeah, and without that context preceding, you can't see this as, oh, yeah, this is continuing on in this idea that the, the disciples are going to do the work of Jesus. They're going to do the same things Jesus did. They're going to say the same things Jesus said. They're going to suffer the same fate Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And that's continuing in that vein. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why that's the principle for organiza- organizing all these different um, selections from the gospel tradition. Well, and then it here. makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, they really are kind of, they feel like, it makes you feel like Matthew's not a very good writer because why would he stuff all these in here like yeah. this? It, it yeah. feels like just little sound bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, um, Again, Matthew continues with the material from the Q tradition, citing the statement that for nothing is covered up that will not be mm-hmm. uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known in Matthew ten twenty six. But again, Matthew has reshaped this tradition to incorporate it into his missionary discourse. If you look at Luke, this tradition constitutes a warning in Luke mm-hmm. chapter 12. Here, it is... An, an encouragement, right. basically, um, and and as Gene Boring says, it's made into a foundational principle of Christian discipleship. Uh, basically, in in Matthew mm-hmm. chapter ten, uh, it's an encouragement to the faithful witnesses to carry out their mission without fear. Yes. What I say yes. to you in the dark, tell in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Well, mm-hmm. in in Luke's context, that's a warning about judgment. That everything right. that is said in secret will be made public at the judgment. Right, right. But in Matthew's context, mm-hmm. it's, it's reframed yep. as, a, as an encouragement to them yep. to proclaim uh, the message boldly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I agree with that 100%. I have, I'm usually not ahead of Alan working on, on these things, but that was kind of the kind of thoughts I was having about the passage. So mm-hmm. I feel very, feel very excited today. Like nice. I, I read it well. Nice, so nice. moving on then... Um, to the, to the next quote. Yeah, so Matthew goes on to quote the Logian, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Supposedly as further encouragement to faithfully <laughs> proclaim the gospel, but again, we should remember that this material from Q is framed as a warning of impending judgment in Luke. And I would say that here, Matthew's use of this tradition is not entirely convincing as encouragement <laughs> to me. I mean, right. you know... Uh, I mean, not fearing those who can hurt you bodily because you're afraid of the one who can right. cast your soul and body into right. hell. That doesn't sound very encouraging to me. Right. And, you know, um, the the material that follows, I think, which reminds them of the Father's care as one who provides for all creation, even sparrows, even to the numbering of the hairs on their head, is mm-hmm. much more convincing. And so, again, I think here we run into a seam of Matthew's composition because he's brought this material over from Q. And, and in Q, I, I probably in Q, in Luke, you've got this, it's more of this judgment theme. Right. And it doesn't really, the first verse, verse 28, doesn't really fit well as uh, you know as in, in i think in, as part of the missionary discourse 
Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, I I don't think it makes the point. Don't be afraid of them. I I don't either. I don't, I've thought about this kind of thing before and it, yeah, it's it's not logical on our, our, our personhood that not Mm -hmm. to be afraid of them. I don't know how encouraging is. I do think, um, I do think that that space between, well, I want to say this. I mean, in a day when people are dying around you all the time, there's an encouragement about this um, that you don't have to fear fear, fear that death. Little, fear right. that death. Right. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, to me, I think in this context, you know, that that verse twenty eight that that was originally um, meant in a judgment context. Yes, and it makes much more sense in a judgment context. You know, mm-hmm. as a, as an encouragement to be faithful and, and carry out the mission, I don't think it works at all. Yeah, and this is an, this is a really interesting point he's pointing out because, in a way, and we were kind of criticizing Matthew for yes. making this 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 interpretive move. Well, um, yes, yes. I mean, I get why he's pulling this material in, mm-hmm. right? Um, because he's using material from Q that he finds he's weaving this stuff together thematically. Right. Same. It's the same. It's the same process that he used to create the Sermon on the Mount. There are yes. things in there that that don't seem that seem like sound bites as well mm-hmm. in the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount because they don't seem to follow. Uh, absolutely, and same so problem. You have mm-hmm. to look hard for the theme. <laughs> right, right, yeah. and this is the same way. Yeah. So it does make sense the theme, and he does yeah. get the material in here, but it is. Well, it just needs We're going to get there. Plans. We just have to be patient. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So in the verses that follow, again, I think we see this theme once again. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And again, that, that comes in from a different setting in, in, in the gospel tradition, and it works in the setting of warning about impending judgment. I don't think that works that well as an encouragement to faithful witness. But I think it's at this point that we come to the reason why Matthew has incorporated these traditions from Q into his missionary discourse, even though they all don't quite fit as well as the others. The opposition to faithful witness that Matthew's community faced came from within their own families. And so in this judgment Mm -hmm. discourse in Q, you know, basically you find uh, a statement about, you know, your, your, op- your opponents will be your own families. And so what was a general statement about the effect of Jesus' ministry on those who were comfortable with the status quo in Luke's gospel um, uh, becomes here uh, uh, an address, it's something that's pastorally addressing probably a, a real situation in Matthew's church. Yeah. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be the members of one's household in Matthew 10, mm-hmm, 35 to 36. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this summarizes the content of Micah 7, 6, but it's not a citation. Uh, it's definitely not citing the Septuagint. Oh, and and yeah. if anything, it may be a translation of the Masoretic text, but it's definitely not a quotation from the mm, Septuagint. Okay. So then this section of the discourse does really doesn't serve as the conclusion, but we kind of have to stop in verse 39, because <laughs> the only the only gospel reading that the Revised Common Lectionary has next week is Matthew 10, 40 mm-hmm. to 42. And if we were taking, if, if, if I had an option, I would, I would say we should go through verse 42 today because it all is mm-hmm. meant as part of the conclusion of the missionary discourse that Matthew is, com- is composing. But they've kind of broken it up for us, so we kind of have to stop here. So we'll wrap up the missionary discourse next week. But for now, the lesson for today concludes with the sayings brought together from different gospel traditions whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy Mm -hmm. of me and again he here matthew is reframing and summarizing mark materials from mark uh from luke chapter 14 Mm -hmm. verses 26 and 27 however it's important to you know no it's important to note as 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 well as the statement about actually in luke's gospel whoever does not hate your right, father and right. mother is not. Yeah, it's it very, cannot be my disciple. Yes. It's much harsher, right? So Matthew has reframed it, you know, to to I think address this felt need in the Matthean community that they it was their own family that was opposing them. But I think we also have to understand that if 
you know, this is coming right after. So in, in the flow of Matthew's gospel, we've had the emphasy narrative. We've had the Sermon on the Mount. We've had chapters 8 and 9, which talk about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then we have the missionary discourse in chapter 10. We've had nothing that really directly points to Jesus going to a cross. Yeah. And so the statement about taking up the cross in order to follow Jesus, there's there's no previous context mm-hmm. in Matthew that would that would give anybody a framework for for recognizing that i mean obviously every reader of matthew's gospel will have known that jesus had died on the cross right so it would make sense to them historically but in a narrative sense you know it's kind of abrupt because Mm -hmm. there's no preparation for it in in matthew's narrative Mm -hmm. but again matthew has collected this saying and placed it here because of the reference to loving jesus more than the members of one's own family and uh, again this points to the pressure that matthew's community was facing not only from synagogues and from governors and kings but also from their own oh, families, families. Th- yeah. i actually think this is really interesting um the whole taking up the cross within the narrative um as you're pointing out that's mm-hmm. that's really effective i think it um it, it begins to suggest look look this is what this is going to mean mm-hmm. i'm bringing these mm-hmm. these it's kind of a reminder of you're your being lax this is a big deal mm-hmm. this is at this point, you don't even know what it really means to take up the cross. And yet, I mean, And yes. we, we don't really know much about Matthew's community at this point. Were right. they being lax? Were they being faithful? Were, well, they getting, were they getting discouraged by the opposition they faced? We don't really know. We're left to kind of read between the lines in some of these things. I think it's pretty clear that they were facing opposition from the synagogue leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know from, from just uh, the rest of the New Testament that... Christians in that era faced opposition from That's Roman, I mean. from from individual Roman leaders, you know, mm-hmm. from time to time. And, and, you know, that the fact that they would, they would face pressure from their own families again, that's, that's not nothing surprising well, either. I'm reading this, you know, thinking of today, right? How are you a Christian when it's just, just when it's easy? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's reminding me in a, in a contemporary sense, right? And this idea that it's, it, it's just an easy mm-hmm. thing to do and I can yeah. give lip service or I can play on a church volleyball team and it's wonderful. So and I think this is, has that same thing. It's like, yeah. this is not just listening here. This is, uh, this is radical. This yeah. is. Well, and, and Gene Boring has a really good co- quote about a comment about this in his new interpreters Bible com, uh, commentary on Matthew. He says, you know, basically the effect, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. If, if all of this sounds foreign to your understanding of Christianity, maybe that's a measure of how far Christianity has strayed from its roots. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Huge, right? <laughs> because, because this, is this is the reality that that many people in this world face even right. today well and i do think where this concludes is kind of beautiful if you want to f- finish this. yeah yeah so it concludes with a version of the saying that jesus gave to those who would follow him after his first passion prediction and we recall this was in matthew chapter 16 it'll come later it's repeated there those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it and so in the context of matthew's missionary discourse then this serves as the final call to faithful discipleship, losing one's life in faithful witness to the gospel and service of the mm. kingdom. I just think that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and see, you yeah. know, this is why you have to back up and start yeah. with verse 16 because otherwise it's just a, a, a random collection it, of sound bites right. that don't make yeah, much sense. But once you go through it, it's, 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 it's actually very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that. You bet. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back. And as it turns out, Christy's going to talk to us about what John Calvin says about the verse that I think doesn't really fit. Yeah, 1028. <laughs> well, and, and he references it a lot. And I'm really going to talk a little today about the Institutes and the theology. And it's, it's, I think it's really, really interesting um, how theology develops maybe from ideas that come from Scripture. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, and, and how we, we, we come to construct theology out of it, these these great um, um, uh, systematic theologies, and yet at the same time, it almost has an impracticability about it, right? It's not really a practical thing. So anyway, uh, one of the big things for John Calvin was um, the relationship between body and soul, which he pulled from that particular verse, that 1028, um, because we're talk- it has that reference, by- right. which, as you recall, we just talked about 
can be kind of really pulled out of context. And really, when I think a lot of these theologies happen, people do pull things out of context to try to give these kind of proof texts throughout. Well, and I think here's the thing, you know, every theology has some sort of organizing principle. Yes. And the question is whether or not your organizing principle, if you're trying to be biblical in your theology, uh, reflects a central enough and all-encompassing enough principle, biblical principle, to be able to be the organizing principle right, of your theology. Right. You know, a lot of people, they just, they take an amalgamation of proof texts and right. they throw it together and they right. say, this is biblical theology. Right. With, and the only, the only organizing principle is, well, the Bible is inerrant and the Bible is, right, is infallible. Right. And so whatever the Bible says is true. And I'm just right. gonna, that this, this, this was, um, a strong, I mean, I think a strong, thought you that go. you know yep. you could just you could just do a compendium of, of biblical verses essentially and and come right. up with a coherent theology and you can't you can't do that. No. so calvin does right yeah. but he's really the first in yeah. this effort so you have to put him you have to be fair to him you know we, mm-hmm. we want to put more yeah. on him than no, he's capable right. of and um and his his foundational pol- principle is that god is sovereign right, right. we know that right so which i think is is a consistent biblical principle and it is a big enough principle to to make a coherent theology exactly so again to verse 28 do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both body both soul and body in hell so that's the the verse he's referencing so the question is what is our nature and how are we connected together for Calvin, we are how we are created is the, one of the central questions. Uh, God the creator, God the right. sovereign creator. Um, and then he wants to discuss humans in their fallen state. As created in the image of God, right, uh, we have to know who we are in order to understand God. He makes a big deal. You can't we can't really understand who God is, so we understand who we are as created. Yeah. In God's image. Well, I think that's a principle that's been reflected in various theologies. It, and some some start with you can't understand who God is unless you understand who you are. Some yeah. some start yeah. with you can't understand who who you are unless right. you understand who God is. But, but I think they're I think they're definitely linked. But I think there's a difference between Calvin's concept of you than it, than maybe a modern concept surely. of surely. you know we we were clipping this into maybe this modern post. A Cartesian type. Well, I mean, Paul Tillich basically starts with an understanding of yes. the human. Yes, and, yes. And, and from that moves toward an understanding but of God. But Calvin isn't Tillich. So I just want yeah. to point no, that no, out. No, right, no, right. He's a right. pre-modern thinker. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So for Calvin, he notes that we are created good. That God's creation is created out of God's perfection. Right. So therefore, in the Calvin's world, Calvin world, uh, human beings are not corrupted by nature as this would be inconsistent with a God who created the world in God's image, but rather as a result of free will. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that because, I mean, you know, you do have the emphasis in Genesis that it's all very good yeah. when God creates yeah. it. Yeah, And so, but it's this free will that and, and people don't acknowledge, but that's part of the creation, mm-hmm. this free will, but God reclaims it all. So this is one of the places where I have issues with Calvin because I, I haven't decided that he's fully wrapped himself back up yeah. because he acknowledges his free will, but yeah. he also said, and that Wants God to will reclaim it, back to it God's, all. Yeah, but God's what sovereignty. does really happen if you're talking about a reprobate, are they indeed really reclaimed? And in this discussion, yeah. he doesn't really... In my opinion, wrap it up all the way. Well, it's like he 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 wants to he 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 wants to put subsume free will under God's sovereignty, but not entirely. Yeah, right. Because enti- if you yeah. subsume free will entirely under God's sovereignty, then that means God's sovereign will for the salvation of all people is right. is the is the hope of the world. But I would argue with you. There's places, plenty of places in Calvin's commentaries that you see or commentaries in particular institutes where you see this hope for universal and you see it but it has been it has been obscured by those who hear the other voice Mm. more and who have said oh double predestination which he does stay as well but yet i think you're being too black and white when you're Mm -hmm. looking at this when you're looking at this um really first Right. Person to put together right. a, a system. This is a theology. first effort. Yeah, the first effort. I mean, yeah, yes, we can't you, expect the sophistication of a Karl Barth. Even Karl Barth. 
Yeah. You know, when he started off his theological project, which which spanned about 30 years exactly. of writing his dogmatics. Right. Um, at the beginning of his dogmatics, he was much more rigid about about the salvation of all people. Right. And and by the time he gets to the end in volume four, he's he's much more open to the idea that, you know, um, it's not like it's something we can count on as if we deserve it right but it is something that we're commanded to hope for yeah. you know yeah, and so exactly. so yeah. it's even even bart you know who is the beneficiary of centuries of reformed theology you know it takes him you know 20 years exactly. to get to that point exactly and so that's it's just important to keep him in his context yeah. right yeah. so calvin furthermore notes that god creates both a body and a soul um together right Calvin defines the soul as Im, an immortal yet created essence or spirit. Now, he, he goes on and on about how this the use of spirit is not exactly the same in all contexts, so I didn't get into that here, but, but um, think of it in essence terms. So he ties many aspects of our being to this relationship, such as our ability to discern good and evil, our ability to respond to God, and our experience of guilt. And he goes on and on at this for some time as well, how we, how, I guess, how we know we have a soul, what, what, how, and, and how we're different from other creatures, Mm -hmm. at least in his perception. Again, he's not a scientist, doesn't have the science we have today. Yet it is the fallen world, he says, that pulls us from the oneness with God and being in it is corrupted. Mm -hmm. So being in the world. Being in the fallen world, yeah. The fallen world, and that's important. For Calvin, that knowledge of God and the existence of God are of the same immortality. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> so that you would know about God, right? And right. that it, it reminds me, I, I use my own thing. It reminds me of my claim that one who, um, that the atheists don't really exist because if they can conceive of God, then they already have, have right. they, can, they can articulate God, therefore they have an, a knowledge of God. That's kind of, right. it kind of fits into my Saying my there is no God already acknowledges the concept yeah, of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so in Calvin's words, he says, quote, the very knowledge of God sufficiently proves that souls which transcend the world are immortal, for no transient energy could penetrate to the fountain of life. Mm. He then elaborates on the ability of the human mind to arrange things, have memory, and infer the future from a past as elements of the So I guess essence. the contrast there is immortality versus transient. Is the soul immortal or is it transient? You know, is it only temporary, temporal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and he would say, no, it's not only right. temporal, right? right. And, and, right. and I think many modernists today would say it is. Surely. Right? Sure. Okay. So Calvin uses scripture to defend his position. And one of the verses he quotes is from Job 4.19, um, which, um, where he uses to support that death, we leave the houses of clay, as he said, mm-hmm. or, and the, that's the body. Mm-hmm. And he also re- references 1 Peter 2.25, which references soul. And he claims that the words would not appear in 1 Peter if indeed there were no soul. Mm-hmm. So, of course, um, and there's so many more. He, I mean, he really does add a lot of scriptural support for it. Does he deal with 1 Corinthians 15, do you know? Yes. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, how could he deal with yes. not deal with soul and resurrection yep, and yep, resurrection yep. body without dealing with 1 yep, Corinthians 15? I have that one here. Yeah. So, yeah, many, many choices. I just picked a few. Right, <laughs> right. So, of course, the discussion of body and soul is further tied to the next question, which is what is that relationship in regards to death and resurrection? Yeah. Um, and here he again references the 1028 verse. Now, compared to our modern concepts of body, for Calvin, he believed that we would be resurrected in our same bodies. <laughs> so if you die at the age of 89, overweight, gray-haired, all wrinkled, it's going to be the same well, wrinkled, gray-haired, overweight body? I, I wondered about that. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, that's kind of interesting. But then, then he... It's the same body, but it's different, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's, but it's not decayed. I, I, or if you're two, are you just two? It's, it, there's right. interesting questions there that he doesn't so, deal so with. So you have the yeah. body of a two-year-old, but you have a mind of an adult? Right, right, <laughs> exactly. So he says, it is a, quote, monstrous error by those who imagine that the soul will not receive the same bodies with which they are now clothed, but will be furnished with a new and different ones. Well, and see, I mean, you know, I get that because, you know, Paul, as it goes to question, 
quite a bit of trouble in 1 Corinthians 15 to argue that that there is continuity between the mortal body and the mm-hmm. and the resurrection exactly. body. But I, I think I'm much more comfortable putting it that way, continuity, mm-hmm. rather than it is the ide- identical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is interesting here is that there are clearly thinkers in a Christian tradition that hold this view, and I think it is closer to what modern Christians think about the resurrection, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's because he's referring to these people that but have it's this a monstrous bad, error. This error, right? <laughs> so now, while this has, um, a, well, it has this modern over time, I think it's important to understand why Calvin refutes this position. In his mind, all that created is good, and even if it is fallen, it can be redeemed. Mm. Mm-hmm. The position, uh, which is interesting, yeah. even if it's fallen, it can be redeemed. Yeah. So how does that fit with this whole idea of, <laughs> of the reprobate that can't right, be right? right? He is clearly he's not, he's, he hasn't He hasn't wrapped his, his own hasn't. theological project exactly. up together. And so yeah. the people that pull that out of Calvin and say he's definitive on this mm-hmm. are just wrong. He mm-hmm. is very inconsistent. Yeah. So yeah. the position of the Manichaeans, for example, claimed that new bodies must be given to the resurrected because their bodies were considered created evil. All oh, right. All all matter in this in exactly. this world is is created by exactly. an evil demiurge. Exactly. Yeah. So in Calvin's mind, we're really debating the sovereignty of God. In other words, there can't be another creator, right? Right? right. Um and therefore he wants to reclaim the original body. The, yeah. So in practice, of course, this leads to funeral funeral practices of a full burial. As there is no as there is a need for the actual body to reclaim and, and, it. And an even full burial facing the right direction. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> um, and he cites scripture to emphasize the point. But specifically elderly folks in our congregations today, my mom, I she just was totally freaked out by the idea of, of any 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 type of um um any type of Cremation. Cremation, yeah. thank you. Um, she just, no, and it's fine. So it, it, it's interesting, and I still mm-hmm. see that, um, we still see that some, less and less, um, but that is still very much in the minds mm-hmm. of some of our folks that had been obviously really passed down. Literal understanding mm-hmm, of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very literal. So in my mind, if Calvin asks this question of the body, then what happens if someone dies with the body being discovered? <laughs> <laughs> so he, he addresses it. He does address it in institutes. And he asks inter- interesting questions like, how would the head and members be matched in a new body? <laughs> this is kind of funny that he is willing to put so much wonder in death, but make this pronouncement about a new body. I really love this portion because he really takes on this exact question. As put to him, how can bodies com- how completely rot and be con- and be consumed return to its original state? Yeah, and so he claims that the reason we have the funeral rites at all is to prepare the body for that return. So here is he presupposing some sort of embalming that's going to yeah. preserve the body? Yeah, yeah. some huh. type of or 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 rites, and this is where he was surprisingly kind of okay with some of the rites like done by the Roman Catholics, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. And or as he talks about um, not only the Jewish patriarchs, but with Gentiles mm. that and, and perhaps even that that innate nature of God that's implanted in us that might have somebody do this who's not even Christian, but they somehow recognize the immortality oh, of the soul. Mm. Really kind of interesting pieces. So it is here that Calvin does not really criticize the burial practices, like I pointed out, as it is a means to, quote, raise our eyes from gazing upon a grave that corrupts and effaces everything, but instead leads to a vision of renewal. Mm-hmm. Now, even though the body's resurrected, its quality is different. <laughs> I don't know what that means. So maybe maybe you're not 89 and overweight right. and, and gray and wrinkled. Its condition will be different. The corruption will vanish. Ah, there you go. As he's, and then he quotes 1 Corinthians 15. He says, we shall all be changed. Well, and he says, you know, it's sown corruptible, it's raised incorruptible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> yeah, so. I could go on many different directions wondering what my under, uncorruptible body would look like. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> do I get to have a six pack abs? Uh, exactly. Do, do exactly. I get to do I get to just pick up a guitar and play it the way I've always wanted to? Uh, I, right, right. <laughs> okay. So with Calvin, we always have to think about the reprobate or the mm-hmm. ungodly. What what about souls not taken back to God? 
mm. which would be in within wow. what we know. Think about Calvin, right? And you are all asking the question of how does Calvin look at resurrection in the context of God's sovereignty, freedom of the will, and salvation? So are the ungodly resurrected? Um, are they... Um, so we ask the questions that we have, and I think it's really important to look at Calvin. And I've kind of hinted earlier, he's not consistent. Mm-hmm. So these are questions that specifically, I, I typed a whole big piece out of, mm-hmm. out of the institutes just to say some of the questions he's asking. But by what right do the ungodly and accursed of God have a common resurrection, which is a singular benefit of Christ? We know that in Adam all were condemned to death, but Christ came as resurrection and life. Did he come to give life to all mankind without distinction? But what would be less fitting that they, in their stubborn blindness, should attain what the pious worshipers of God receive by faith alone? <laughs> but is that faith alone if you are... Uh, I mean, it sounds like works. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, you know, to me, it would say, by what right do the ungodly and accursed of God have a common resurrection? I would say by right of the grace right. of God, which is right. is unconditional. So, however, the fact remains firm. One will be a resurrection of judgment, mm. the other of life, wow. and Christ will come to separate the lambs from the goats. His answer here is his convoluted answer that all people were cut off from God except that God reclaimed them. But, as he points out, does it make sense to have someone come before Christ who has rejected Christ? But there is a resurrection of just and unjust, says Calvin. And we have the great medieval um, Christ who judges. I I think this is how we have to see Calvin, is this Mm -hmm. medieval concept of Christ who judges, cutting up those who have not responded to to God. In this life. Yeah. Yeah. So I think... What I'm pointing out here is Calvin's inconsistency. Yes, He's absolutely. asking these questions. He doesn't have a very complete answer because it's sometimes you'd be like, "He's really a universalist." Well, but, but it does. I mean, it doesn't sound like sound like the sovereignty of God's grace. It sounds like you're saved by your works, by here. by by what did he say? By the pious, yeah, by piously pious, worshiping God. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you see this imbalance, and you see this mm-hmm. struggle in Calvin that people have overlooked, and mm-hmm. he's asking all these questions. And he does not end this chapter satisfactorily, in my opinion. He, he but where he ends up, which is unfortunate, is he ends up with this kind of, um, kind of fire and brimstone, kind of this medieval god kind of mm-hmm. thing, and that's what then the 17th century thinkers right. pulled out from Calvin and stuff codified into Calvinism exactly yep. into Calvinism when when you read him carefully you're realizing this is a this is someone struggling with some yeah. of these things it's not it's not as neat as he wants yeah. it to be yeah. so i think and that's I, I think that's true for anybody who engages any in any kind of larger theological project it's not always going to be totally right. consistent right it, it and i think that's that's I mean, to me, that's the beauty of it, right? Right. I think when you're involved in any kind of science, you know, we always talk about mm-hmm. doctors having all the answers, but when you talk about the art of medicine, mm-hmm. you're talking about piecing together things, and I think that's how we're creating. There's an art of theology. Yeah. And there's an art of theology, yeah. and once you realize that, um, and you realize that Calvin is part is an artist himself, mm-hmm. then it gives you a lot more appreciation for his efforts. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back. And uh, during our break, we were talking about how we wanted to pursue our uh, final segment. And, um, you know, we were thinking about just the whole idea that in in American Christianity, uh, reading um, a passage like the one we're dealing with today sounds very foreign to us. You know, the whole idea of being um, rejected and persecuted and um, even beaten for the sake of our faith um, is is something that many of us can't even fathom, and um, and so what does that mean for our faith, and how do we how do we deal with this passage mm-hmm. in light of that? What do you think, Christy? Yeah, I you know I was thinking about this too on a couple different levels. One, in some of the circles I have are, are non Christian people who look in on Christians, um, feeling that it's a, a kind of feel good club, or they'll look in on Christians and they don't understand really the radical call of Jesus. They tend to not see um, uh, the the discipleship that went forward, and uh, so on that 
on, on I see that on one hand, but I can see why they see that because I think a lot of our people are only halfway committed. They have their toe in the water, but they haven't yet really lived to respond to God's call in their lives. And Christianity is part of our culture. It's not a lifestyle that we embrace thank you i think that's what yeah it's it's it is it's it's become kind of a cultural thing i have been watching so um lately thinking about how secular culture is treating religion and or conversations i'm having with folks and what's really struck me is we are really starting to move into this post-Christian world in mm-hmm. terms of identity. And so what people think Christianity is, and even what Christians think yeah. Christianity is, I agree. is very different than these first century yeah. and second century Christians. Very different from the New Testament, yeah. Very different. And in fact, I would su- suspect most of them at the end of the day wouldn't be on board with any kind of any kind of, if you will, radical faith. Sacrificing, mm-hmm. you have to sacrifice. Um, you know, what is it? The what does it say here that? Um, 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 let's see. Uh, finding the verse here. Um, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it, right? We, we're all about finding our life in this world yes. and securing our lives in this world, and nobody wants to lose our life for anybody's sake. Exactly, you know? and, exactly. And we, we just don't construe living the Christian life as something where we lose. Yeah. We construe it as something where we get to go to heaven when we die. Right, right. Well, and I am moving soon. I, got, I am taking a new call. And so many people said, oh, good for you. Whatever makes you happy. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, no, 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 no. This, this is a discerned call. Yeah. This is something I am. This um, is about a discipleship commitment. It's a discipleship commitment. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it, <laughs> I, I feel great. I'm, I, I'm honored, but I also feel great gravity. Um, mm-hmm. With this move, which I don't know if people fully understand, they're like, "Hey, it's you know, you're party it's, time. It's a party, right?" And I'm like, <laughs> I, "I, I, I'm excited to be in service, but I am very nervous about the weight on my shoulder, and 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 I am praying daily for guidance as I move into this new space." Now, as I hear you, as you hear you talk, I think about what you were what you've said many times about how in the middle ages, um, the, the, the Christians, the ones who did the Christian work were the priests <laughs> yes. and everybody else just kind of spectated. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's almost like in this post Christendom world, we're getting back to that. We kind of are, you know, yeah. that, that the pastors and the ministers and the rectors and the priests mm-hmm. are the ones who are actually doing the discipleship thing. And everybody else is just kind of spectating. Mm-hmm. And and they have so many other priorities that that everything else is more important than than practicing their faith, you know. Right now, mm-hmm. for most people, right, right. Um, and um, you know, it, as as Gene Boring put it, you know, if if you read this passage, and it seems inconceivable that this would be the way that Christian that, that this would be the right. this would be the way that, that that a commitment to Christian discipleship would lead you, then maybe that's a measure of how far we've strayed from right, from from right. the perspective of the New Testament. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, absolutely. And yet at the same time, when we think of our churches, how much we have to run them like businesses and like, Mm -hmm. and how we, um, have to focus on all these things. And, and it may be what's wrong with the church, right? Maybe because we're focusing on all these business-like choices and because we're trying to decide, you know, how big our new building should be. And because, and, and not that buildings aren't important, but, um, but maybe, I keep hearing a lot of churches that are losing members wondering why, and maybe it's because we don't seem to have that um, commitment anymore. I don't know. I well, don't know. there's some people who would who would argue that when a, when the church went from being a community to being an institution with its own buildings, it changed radically. It mm-hmm. made a it made a big change, a radical difference in the in the identity of the church. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, and I can see both sides of that because I've been a pastor of a church, you know, with a building and I've been a pastor of a church that lost its building to fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not having a building kind of gives you a sense of unrootedness. And, and part of it, it, it's not so much the building as it is the memories 
of right. your family events that have taken place here, loved ones, you know, mm-hmm. who have whose funerals you've attended, whose weddings, weddings you've attended, yes, baptisms yes. you've been able to attend, you know, things like that. So it becomes a kind of sacred place because of the memories of what it, yeah, what is what true. has happened there. That's true. But at the same time, it does free you up from from a lot of the just the mm-hmm. institutional administration headaches, you know. Right. And 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 yet, you know, um, the church that was destroyed by fire that I was pastor of, they had a they had a, a distribution of food at Christmas time, and we had to arrange with another Presbyterian church mm-hmm. locally to be able to use their fellowship hall space because we were meeting right. in two. It was a double trailer basically. Oh, wow! And and so we just had space for worship. We didn't have space to collect all this food and, and organize wow. it and, and deliver it. So it, you know there 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 is a sense in which a building can be used can be used as a ministry outpost. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. if you if you can construe your building that way as a ministry outpost, and this is something. I mean, right. this is not something original to me. A lot of people are saying oh, this, of course, right? right? Right, That you, you use your well, building to 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 um, to bring as much of the community right. in contact with your church as possible. Right, right. and so I, I mean, I, that may have been the wrong example on my no, on no, my end, no. But 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 yeah, it, it, how you use that space, mm-hmm. right? How you create community in that space. Mm-hmm. How you're, you know, sometimes I get caught up with administrative kinds of things. And I forget that it's really pe- the people that have mm-hmm. to come first. I right. have to be in that prayerful fa- space yeah. of the individuals that are that are brought to my mind. That that and and it's it's that interesting balance. But it, you can get so caught up in all the doings that you forget about the beings. I guess I work with a friend of mine named Chris Peterson, who's a coach, and she's my coach, like mentor coach. And um, one of the discussions we've had through the transition of the pandemic is going from, you know, I, I sort of understood myself as the chief operations officer of the, of the church in a sense, using a secular image, you know, because I was helping to coordinate the work of the committees and the mm-hmm. work of the session and, and helping to coordinate the work of ministry of the mm-hmm. church. And, um, you know, as in the wake of the pandemic, part of our discussion has been maybe I should consider myself the CPO, the chief personnel or the chief people officer officer. as as opposed to the chief operations officer, because it's really more about that. And I think that is a shift that that is that is going to be crucial, I think, for our churches. Mm -hmm. But I really think I really think it has to do with the fact that we have lived through um, almost 50 years of relative prosperity, relative safety, yep. Yep. Um, uh, relative uh, ease and comfort. I really think that has mm-hmm. to do, with, uh, that's a big part of it. So. Oh, I think so too, right? Because, I mean, because we're, you know, we're talking about a third generation. You know, my, I, yep. I, I, you know, grew up on the, on the tail end. Of, I mean, I grew up during the Vietnam era. Right. I grew up during the Cold War. I grew up, and, and, and when I was getting out of college is when that kind of began to fizzle out. And things, you know, we had the 80s and the boom years of the 80s and the 90s. And, and you know, the prosperity of those years and just the, the you know, the ease of, of that that it created for us all. My children grew up in that era. My grandchildren are now mm-hmm. growing up in that era. So we're, we're looking at the third generation of right. people in this era of prosperity right. and ease and right. safety, as opposed to the people who went right. through the Depression and World War II. That's true. That's you know, true. It makes a huge difference. Well, as Warren Buffett was pointing out, that even someone impoverished today is still living in much, mm-hmm. much better situation than somebody that, you know, 50 years ago, just like right. you pointed out. Right. And, you know, he pointed out that, that yeah, our, our standard of living, even for folks that don't have enough, is still higher yep. than it used to be. So I wish I had his full quote in front of me. But so, yeah, interesting Um that's an interesting observation. And so you don't know what you don't know, you know, and, um, you know, when, when I I have found how often do people enter the church and they hear the good words and they're so moved and they're like, I need this in my life. Doesn't mean that they just step into the church though, Mm -hmm. but they recognize something's missing in their Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that step is to have somebody who hears 
the words at a funeral step into your fellowship after they have been out. Their patterns, they have to be someone who's also moved to change the patterns. I don't know how to shift that with folks. No, I don't either. And personally, I think it's going to take... I personally think it's going to take some traumatic event. And, you know, you'd think that the pandemic would have had that effect, but I think it had the opposite effect. It did something different. Mm -hmm. It did something different. Um, But I think it's going to take something really traumatic uh, economically to to shake us mm -hmm. out of our complacency and our ease and and to bring us back to the realization that, hey, my, my life depends upon Christ. Yeah. Not upon my retirement account. Right, right. <laughs> my life depends upon Christ and the kingdom of God, right. not upon the size of my house or the size right. of my salary. Right. Or the yeah. size of no, my 401k. No, you're right. And I think, um, I, I think you've got it pinned down. And uh, I guess I'd still... At the end of the day, you know, because people talk about post-Christian, they talk about the church is all falling apart. I mean, this is the young person's perspective, right? It's the church is going to die. And I just keep, in the back of my mind is, it may ebb and flow like it always has, but it's not going to die no. because it's Jesus. Absolutely. And it's, it's God's And church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. Exactly. And so, you know. Uh, and it may not be in this country. It may be Jesus will be building his church in other cultures yeah. that are more open and receptive to the spirit of God and more willing to align their lives with the kingdom right. of God than we are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, All right. Thanks. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.